Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Little House on Normal Street. I am your host, Margaret Applecore. So today's discussion is actually going to veer away from what I've been experiencing lately and actually go back to the book that I've been reading about uh, complex PTSD. Again, the book that I've been reading through is Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving by Pete Walker. And its fifth chapter uh, really hit me very close to home. Now, when I talk about a lot of the abuse that I endured, and I talk about a lot of the abuses that um, friends and family endured, there's a very big, if you will, white elephant in the room. And that white elephant is the fact that I was almost for the most part never hit. Never beaten, uh, never hit with a whip or hit with a belt. Um, none, none of that violence for the most part. Uh, this stemmed from the fact that my father used to actually hurt my mother. And I believe when we were about, when I was about five or six or so, she pulled a knife on him and threatened to kill him if he ever put fingers or hands on her again. Obviously, he kept putting his hands on her for many, many years, but he never tried to hit her again. So we didn't experience a lot of physical violence to our personal body. When my dad would lose his mind and start arguing, he would throw everything else. So the kitchen would be trash, plates and cups broken. That's why we tended to have plastic plates. Um, a lot of the pots and pans would get thrown around to make noise, dents in the walls. Uh, my mother used to actually videotape these episodes. I don't know where she has them, but maybe I'll find them at some point. So this has always been one of those dirty little secrets I've had when it comes to being a survivor of abuse and being a survivor of PTSD and CPTSD. And even the fact that I'm discussing it in this tone shows that I'm minimalizing what happened to me. But I'll get, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, so, basically, what occurs is when you have these emotional, abusive reactions as a child... Your brain is still forming. It's still forming these neurological pathways. Uh, I know everybody tells, uh, uh, talks about how kids are so uh, impressionable to things. And what they don't seem to understand is that impressionism goes far past... Sorry about that. That impressionism goes far past anything um, you could really think of when you realize the damage that occurs much later in life. Um, so what this book is actually discussing here is that because of our inner critic, we have a tendency to diminish or say that ours, our struggle wasn't that bad. And I've said that many times, even well knowing that I'm diminishing and minimalizing and acting, if you will, in denial. Um, I grew up with a lot of kids who had it a lot worse than me. Some of them didn't have food. 
Some of them didn't have Christmas. Uh, some of them, most of them didn't have Christmas, actually. Uh, some of them would come and spend time over at our house and sleep over because they were not really able to function at their house. Uh, my distantly related cousin spent many a night there in high school because her and her father and her mother were constantly arguing and they would later divorce. But of course it's the children who get the brunt end of this. So for me, I always felt like I was pretending. Like I was this dirty little secret about pretending to be abused. You weren't that abused. You couldn't have been that abused. You were never hungry. You've never lived on the street. You've never had to worry about where your next meal is coming from. And up until a certain year, that was actually pretty true. Um, I do know what it's like to not know where my next meal is coming from now. I do know what it's like to worry about if you're going to be homeless. But when I was a teenager, none of these things was, were a problem. In my father's case, he was making more money than he could really spend. So it wasn't a matter of us not having food. In fact, we got a lot of toys for Christmas as well. Um, I mean, I was the one kid who preferred clothing, but we got a lot of gifts for Christmas. And for me, the reason I'm pulling this specific uh, thread about it is the fact that usually you, you hear people talking about how they didn't even have enough money to keep the lights on. They didn't know if they were going to even, you know, have food in their house that week. And here I was upset about emotional and verbal things that had been done to me in my home. And some of these people had suffered a lot worse. Now, for those friends of mine who did, they have flat out told me before they thought I had it worse. And now they're right in some ways and forms. It's, it's not a competition. It's more so the things that I dealt with were so out of the box compared to, if you will, the normal abuse that we would deal with as a culture. I mean, you have to take into account that my family is Roman Catholic Mexican on both sides. I was supposed to have a child. My father prevented my medical assistance and has essentially made me sterile. So that in itself was just mind-boggling to most people. Even some friends of mine who had been beaten, who had you know, left their house on occasions and stayed with friends for a few weeks, things like that. I, I remember finally telling a few of my friends why I was having trouble having my period. And the girls that knew me were just in horror of, what do you mean they haven't taken you to the doctor? That's worse than anything any of us have gone through. And obviously it wasn't a competition then and it's not a competition now. It's simply a statement of understanding that not everybody's abuse is going to be exactly the same. So in this book, 
when it talks about verbal and emotional abuse and the denial and minimization of these issues, it starts to discuss how, for lack of better words, as a young child is exposed to these abusive and demeaning tactics to belittle them, they develop what's known as the inner critic. Now everyone has an inner critic. Said inner critic tells you when you're making a dumb choice. Uh, inner critic will, for some people, be the perfectionist in them. But for those people who are suffering from any form of PTSD, which includes complex PTSD, it essentially starts to form a neural network in your own brain where your inner critic will start to just build this cesspool of self-loathing and, and self-critiquing and self-hate. And over time, these responses that are internalized become your own voice, if you will. You start to believe everything that this inner critic tells you. And how can you not? It's your own voice. It's, it makes perfect sense. But the real issue behind this is that the, if you will, the end product is that the person who experiences CPTSD essentially becomes, and I'm quoting from the book here, becomes the equivalent of full-fledged self-abandonment, the ability to support himself or take his own side in any way is decimated. And for us, what that means is that when something strikes us in the middle of our brain and we want to comfort ourselves, the first thing our mind is going to do is attack itself. Now, this is normal with anxiety or panic attacks, but when I say attack itself, I mean think of I guess I'll use my example perfectly because this is who I've been fighting my entire life. When my inner critic comes out, it sounds like me. But over the years, we've started to tease apart and realize that what I'm saying isn't me, it's my father. And it was internalized so young and so frequently that when I have these flashbacks and my brain makes connections to those neural networks the words start to show up that are, if you will, almost pre-programmed in. I didn't create them. They were pretty much written into my mind. So it's this constant struggle of, yes, I know I was never hit. Yes, I know I had it a little bit better than some of my friends. But I also didn't have it a little bit better than some of my friends. My friends all got to go off and get married and have children. I have not been on birth control for over five years now. Now, my husband and I aren't trying mm -hmm. to have a baby, but if it happens, it happens. And that was one of the biggest 
ones that I had to push past through um, with my inner critic because I kept blaming myself. And maybe if I had just gone to the doctor uh, a few years ago, I wouldn't have this issue. Or maybe if I had just taken better care of myself diabetes-wise, I wouldn't have this issue. This is all bullshit, and I know it's all bullshit, but the inner critic doesn't think so. And the inner critic is much more important than anything else. Especially when you're having an actual episode or a flashback. Because for those of you who don't know, physiologically, there are two areas in the brain where your mind, there's literal physical proof of what happens with PTSD and CPTSD. Um, one thing called the amygdala, which deals with all of our fight or flight response and our panics and, and everything, uh, it grows, it enlarges. And the hippocampus, which is responsible for creating memories as well as archiving and storing those memories, shrinks. So you have the inability to fully process and create these memories all while your entire body is being hijacked by the amygdala. We call it an amygdala hijacking in the book. And the reason it's called that is because it essentially drops all of your logic. You start to panic. You, you can't find your way out. And you literally circuit break. I can't explain it any other way at least in my case, but everything, it's almost like an overload and the power circuit breaker just flips. And suddenly you're having either a flashback or you're having an anxiety attack or something. So clearly violence doesn't create the intensity of a person's flashbacks and illness. It helps quite a bit, but the body itself creates its own worst enemy. And, it, and initially, it's only trying to do what it thinks is the best thing. Your hippocampus shrinks because you don't want to remember things. It's safer not to remember. It's safer to forget. It's safer to only have the base memories and not really worry about other things that are emotionally possibly driven. The amygdala increases because you're in a sense of fear and a sense of need to survive. So your body does what it does to keep you alive. We can't blame it for enlarging uh, one part and for shrinking another part. It, it, it's, it's the same thing with any other type of illness. It's the same thing with diabetes. My body is diabetic because it's doing exactly what it was supposed to do. Utilize sugar. My body utilizes sugar like nobody's fucking business. However, I, I kind of can't do that because of the fact that there was some malfunction in my genetics and I couldn't continue to react to insulin. I have an insulin resistance. So, but back to the aspect of what if I was never hit? All of these emotional traumas I went through still don't hold up to me to being beaten or to being hurt physically. 
my mother, I think my mother slapped me once in my life and spanked me once in my life. And to be fair, the first time she spanked me, I probably deserved it. Uh, I ran off in Mexico to the next building to go watch all the girls who were dancing. And well, yeah, my mom was at a laundromat. You can imagine a child disappearing like that is a little fucking scary. So I can understand her slapping me or giving a spank right there. And I, I think she slapped me once when I was a teenager, but I don't consider those violence compared to what could have occurred. And I had seen my father's violence, not, not on us, but I had seen it on other people and I had seen it on my mother. And that left a very permanent mark because I couldn't justify telling people that I was being abused when I knew they were being abused even worse in my, in my eyes. And even when we were living in Elmhurst and we had almost nothing, I was still minimalizing and denying that what was wrong and what had happened to me was as bad as it actually was. When you grow up in an environment like that, and it's so common, everyone minimalizes it. And never being hit, oops, never being hit, sometimes I almost wish I had been. And I know that's a very off statement, but I would have known what to do more with physical wounds than I would have the emotional wounds. I mean, uh, I know a lot of children go through a fuck ton of stress going through high school. But when you add on the fact that you're supposed to be the golden child who strikes it rich and drags the whole family out of poverty because they're all a bunch of fucking gamblers, it gets... It goes even deeper with your inner critic because I wasn't hit. What's my excuse? Why am I not top grades? Why am I not uh, top this, top that? I have food at home. I have a house over my I have a roof over my head. Uh, I have clothing. What's my excuse? And this is unfortunately a mentality that uh, not just me, but the entire our entire society has that. What's your excuse if someone else insert whoever randomly be struck it billionaire rich in some from some poor place? Uh, what what's your excuse if they could do it? So that was basically. how my mentality was and fearing being physically hurt didn't scare me as much. In fact, I was often waiting to be hit and it never actually happened. I could deal with being hit. I could deal with being beaten. I mean, I'm an, I'm an adult now and even the thoughts of being beaten at home at that point still seem nicer to me than some of the things that actually occurred. 
And this is a very important topic, not just for me, but for all people in general who have suffered any form of mental or emotional abuse that were not hit. Because we don't need the rest of the world telling us we're invalid because we weren't beaten up or because we don't have any physical scars. We already feel invalidated in ourselves. It's, it's almost like we, weren't, we, we aren't allowed to say we're victims or survivors because of the fact that we were not beaten. And I know this isn't anyone specifically in society telling me, but it's how I see what goes on. I, I see how people I know who have suffered purely mentally and physically and have if from a partner, from family or something, I, I see them trying to recover and I'm so proud of them. And at the same time, I think to myself, why haven't I recovered? I didn't go through as much as they did. And of course I did. My father destroyed my hormonal balance as a teenager. He didn't get me the medications or the psychiatric help I needed. These are medical abusive acts. That some these things are so, some some of the most abusive people I I know, their children were in shock. That this was happening with me. The parents were in shock, that this was happening to me. The same parents who had no problem beating their children, were in shock. That my father wouldn't pay for any medical. So this, this has always been a fascinating moment for discussion with me. Not, not because when I talk to other people, I want to find out all of their, you know, all of their traumas or let's play trauma up one. Let's one up each other. Who had the most fucked up moments in their lives? And yes, we do do this sort of shit just for shits and giggles because everybody needs a gallows humor laugh, but it's not actually a game I want to play in general. Learning to accept the abuse that occurred to me was difficult because I in part still don't see myself as abused as some of my closest friends. Some of them who lived in poverty. Some of them whose fathers were so violently alcoholic drunks that it left scars on their bodies. What do you do when you can't show those scars? What, I, I, I know this one doesn't even have to do with being hit, but my last comment for this would be, what do you do when you don't even have uh, self-harming scars? And I, I give this as an example because I am a self-harmer. I was a self-harmer. And when I say I am a self-harmer, I mean I'm a recovering self-harmer. It has been five years or so six years since I did anything to my body that would constitute self-harm. And it took so many years and so many, you know, backslides. But even then, my eating disorder used to, well, I guess it depends on what era of my life. When I was in my was 14, I started starving myself. Uh, in my early 20s, I developed bulimia. 
And obviously nobody believed I had because, well, I wasn't doing it enough and nonsense like that. And they regulated it for the most part for a while to self-harm. And they were right. It was my one way of still controlling my body. So all of these things that coalesced and slowly formed all of the points, if you will, in my wonderful confluence of complex PTSD. One of the biggest ones was that, for the most part, nobody has ever really laid their hands on me. Maybe it's because I fucking terrify everybody, but no one's ever laid their hands on me, really. No one's ever really hit me. How do you come to terms? with knowing you're that one friend out of all of the mentally ill friends who has never dealt with that kind of physical violence. How do you compare that? You can't. And that's the hardest part to accept is to learn that, yes, I was abused. Yes, my abuse is legitimate and valid, even if it was never a physical hit. So thank you for joining me for another episode. Uh, if you want to get in contact with me, feel free to email me at madgirlwithabluebox at gmail.com. Yes, that is a Doctor Who reference. And if you'd also like to get a hold of me on Twitter, my Twitter tagline is Mad Girl Blue Box. So give me a shout out or stop and say hi or ask a question. Thanks, everyone. Catch you on the next one. Mm-hmm.